So I want to begin um, by, by do, saying a few things. And obviously, always when we're, we're in class and we're thinking about things and, and going through our week, and I always say things always tie in and come together. So as I was, uh, as I was um, preparing or going over the... Yeah, I'm taping. As I was going over the um, the the homer for today, um, and what we're going to be looking at, um, I obviously was reminiscing in my head two nights ago, Sunday night. For those that weren't there, you missed out big time. Sorry to tell you, um, at the Siem Shas Nashim, of which there's a few people in our class who were not just involved but dreamt the dream a long time ago and made it happen. And it was, I, I can't even begin to describe it. I, I don't think there's, just to, the only way to describe it is you knew, you knew when you were sitting there, you were living a piece of history. That, that's like, that was it. It was phenomenal. There's no other way to describe it. It was just everything from, from the organization, the way it ran on the evening, which was just the people that they bought, the videos that they did, the way that it ran. But more than that, you were looking at, the women, you were hearing what they were saying, you were feeling the love of Torah that literally was emanating through that room. Not just from the teachers, but from everyone that was sitting there. You knew as you were sitting there that none of this was about an agenda. It was about a pure love of Torah, a love of tradition. Um, as Esti said, you, you, Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Lichtenstein, why did they make Torah accessible to women? Not because they believed in women, but because they believed that Torah, they believed you couldn't live without learning Gemara and Torah, like it was just part of your makeup. So of course, any person should have access to that. And it was, it was just phenomenal. But as I was thinking about, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I could speak about it for hours. Um, but I really, those that weren't there, I really advise to go online and find the videos. It's not going to give you the feeling of being in the hall because there was just something about being in there. I don't know if, I'm sure they're going to make, you're probably going to, you'll make it accessible, right, at some point. Okay. Okay, well, look, I guess if you look it up on Google anyway, you'll find it. Um, there's videos on there, and I imagine, yeah, I imagine that, 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 that you'll be able to find it online whenever you just put in Hadran and you'll, you'll find videos. Um, it, it was really, you know, at some point when the women, they got all the women who had learned Daf Yomi to stand up and do the Siyam, the Hadran. <laughs> And they stood up, and you could see, and it wasn't, I mean, it was probably about 100 women all in all, maybe a bit more, but there was a woman that was behind me. I took my two girls, my 15-year-old and my 12-year-old, and I have to say, they weren't the happiest about coming, but they came. The kululam kind of enticed them. And as the women stood up and started saying, this, started saying the hadran, the woman behind me, you know, you could see she had, like, tears rolling down her face. And I, st I started bawling. I couldn't stop myself. I was crying and crying. And my girls were looking at me as if, am I okay? <laughs> Is everything okay? And I said to them, girls, I just want you to understand. I'd already drilled it into them that this was unprecedented, the historic moment. You, but I said to them, you don't understand. You will look back on this in 10 years and 20 years, and I promise you, you'll be happy that I brought you here. Because there is something about this moment that is just unprecedented. And... As I was thinking about all of these things, the, um, what was also very interesting is that my, someone wrote about they were, the, the, there were a lot of SEM girls, a lot of year-off girls and Midrasha girls and, and Israeli Midrasha girls that were, you know, every time one of the Torah scholars came on, they were clapping them. And, and it was, someone wrote that it was almost that these Torah scholars had become rock stars, right? <laughs> there was something almost, and wow, I mean, that's like... But the, um, my daughter had done a video um, for her um, bat mitzvah. We had interviewed a whole lot, Marka Petrachovsky and, and Sivan Rav Meir and, and, and Rachali Frankel. And she turned around to me at some point. She goes, Emma, these are all the women that I interviewed, as if they're famous. Look, look what I did. Um, and so there really was something so unbelievably incredible at the whole event. And Mamasha... There wasn't an empty seat. There wasn't an empty seat. No, they had to open the side room as well. It... Okay, and why am I... Well, obviously, I want to speak about it anyway, but how's it connected? So 
We started speaking about Yaakov. We spoke about him leaving. We spoke about him leaving, going into almost as if going into exile. Okay. Um, and one of the things I brought for you here, because one, as you know, one of the major themes I believe runs through the whole of Sefer Breshe is the notion of order and chaos. And that in many ways we live, uh, as human beings, we very often live in, in one foot in chaos and one foot in order. In some sense, that's where we find meaning. Meaning comes between the order and the chaos. That's kind of where we, we create the meaning. Very often meaning erupts in a moment after the chaos, once we've gone back into order. That's where we find the meaning. And it's fascinating that Yaakov, there was another thing that happened this week as well, and I'll tie it all into it in a minute, that Yaakov was Ishtam Yosheva Olim. He was the paradigm of order. Okay, that, that's who he was, right? That's how he was defined in many ways. And what happens is that the minute he adopts this new identity of Esav, he begins to move in to the ground of chaos, to the vacuum, to the... To the the in-between stage. And what happens is that in many ways, the leaving, the departing, the having to let go of his childhood, let go of his mother, let go of everything that's familiar to him, is the moving for him into chaos. And it's, it's very, very interesting because there's this whole notion that to change an existing order, you need chaos. Okay, that, that for many, many, you know, both psychologists and sociologists and many um, people that are in that world talk about this idea that very often, also even the, the process of therapy, for example, very often, you know, what people say when you go through a process of therapy is that you're thrown in to, you're almost thrown into the deep end to this, this idea of chaos in order to create a new order, right? Very often when, you know, when you go back to, if you're, if you're doing... Uh, um, any kind of therapy, I think, you, to go back to the roots, to tap into the questions that are very difficult, you have to go to an uncomfortable place, right? That uncomfortable place is that, is that fear of chaos, right? And what the therapist will tell you is that you have to be very careful. It's kind of walking a very tight rope because on the one hand, you need the patient to go into an element of chaos, but on the other hand, you need not so much chaos that they totally become suicidal, okay? So there's an element of being of having to walk that tightrope between the order and the chaos. One of the stories I brought for you is, um, oh, one other thing was I was reading um, a book that was talking about the idea, it was actually a book about child, uh, child rearing, and it was talking about the idea of the firstborn. And whenever the second child of the family comes, the firstborn, it's as if the first, firstbornness has been taken away from that child. Okay, the firstbornness has been stolen. That was the word that the book used, right? Stolen from the, from the child. Okay, and it can be when they're a year and a half, it can be when they're three, five, whenever it happens to be. There's an element of the stealing of the birthright. Now, again, I was thinking, obviously, my mind straight away went to Yaakov and Esav. And even that notion of Yaakov grabbing onto Esav's foot as he comes out the womb, which is the description, right? There's an element of Yaakov always, all of Esav's life, and, and to go back to this, this image of Esav and the cry that he cries, in many ways, all of his life is a constantly be he's constantly having the birthright stolen from him paid the whole way along the birthrights being stolen from him and there's a there's an element of subconscious awareness in Yaakov that he is the one that's done that and therefore his life plays out in the same way okay and we already saw a few examples but we're going to see many more where something is stolen from Yaakov where he is, something has been taken away from him the whole time, all his life. There is an element of having something stolen from him. And we've spoken about this before, but whether or not one invites these things upon you or whether or not is the text, basically what I'm asking is, how do we read the text? How does the text come to us? Is it coming to us to tell us that this is a, 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 a revenge, a, a punishment for Yaakov? Right, that this has been divinely inspired, that this is what God wanted 
right, that Yaakov should feel that this is a punishment for what he did, or is it because Yaakov, in his mind and his subconscious, is always thinking about it and almost, invi- you know, so when you're thinking so much about something, almost it, it can happen, right? Almost invite something to happen to him. And, I, and in many ways, I think the text is telling us it's an element of both, right? That there is a part of the Torah that wants us to understand that what Yaakov does to his brother and to his father has consequences, okay? That it's not a clean act, that it's not a straight, clean decision, that every choice possesses elements, every choice we make, most of the choices, the difficult choices we make in life, moral choices, possess elements of good and bad. And what our role as human beings is to make those decisions, to weigh up to the best of our knowledge the opposing values and which one trumps. But know at the same time that whatever decision I make, there will be consequences and to live with those consequences. Okay? Now, what, why is this all? So when Yaakov, has this all related, when Yaakov leaves, okay, he leaves, let's not forget, he leaves in a state of chaos. He has left his brother, who's running after him to kill him. He's left his mother, who has been hovering, almost this image of the hovering bird over him. We're going to see that image comes back later in the text, right? Of this hovering mother, this helicopter parenting, so to speak, that almost forces him, coerces him to do that act. He leaves that behind. And all of a sudden, he becomes just himself. He, he, He has to survive on his own. And there's a sense of chaos that reigns in his being. And that sense of chaos is um, explicated in the, in, the, in the text through the narrative okay, um, that we read last week. Okay? And even the narrative itself, even all the imagery in the narrative conveys this idea. Okay, he comes, the sun sets, chaos, again, the notion of the sun setting is this chaos. If you remember, there's a beautiful midrash that speaks about what happens when the very first sunset happens. Okay, when Adam HaRishon experiences the first time it goes dark. And what does God do, to, God do in that case, in the, according to the midrash? He gives him two, um, like, rocks in order to make fire. Okay? Why? What's what's the message there? The message there is that that moment when it goes dark, that's the moment of chaos. Okay, that's the serpent in Gun Eden. That's the darkness in our lives. That's the moment of shock, of whatever it happens to be, of grief, of whatever happens. That's the moment when humanity touches that chaos. And what God does is He doesn't just come and solve the problem. He gives Adam the Ability to know that he has the tools to create light. And what does he do? He rubs the two rocks together and he creates fire. And that's how fire, and that's Borei Mo'orei Ha'esh. That's where the bracha, that's according to the Midrash, right? Um, but the, 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 again, whether or not it's true, it happens, it didn't happen, okay? It, as Martin Buber says, it's not to be taken literally, it's to be taken seriously. And what is that Midrash telling us? What's the seriousness of that Midrash? The seriousness, the theological message of that Midrash is, and remember, we're talking here about the first human being, is that we do not live in a world of mythology when the gods come down, the gods are in charge, the gods do everything, okay? The gods, Prometheus, for example, has to take the fire from the sun and give it to the human beings and teach them how to use fire. No. The, the, almost the polemic of the Midrash is the total opposite. It's about covenantal, the, uh, covenantal theology, which is what Judaism brings to the world. And covenantal theology is exactly this idea. And this is what is being taught to Abraham. And this is what is being taught to Yitzchak. And this is certainly what's being taught to Yaakov. And that is that I am the one who is in charge of my destiny. Okay? And, and, you, and you'll see what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring, tie this all into to, to what happened on Sunday night and to, to Rosa Parks in, in, in the 1960s. Because what is the Midrash telling us here? The Midrash is telling us here that when we encounter chaos, and that can happen at any moment in our lives, 
But sometimes, sometimes even chaos is what brings about innovation. Chaos is what creates a new existing order. But it's got to be just the right amount. Same as the therapist, right? You've got to take the patient to exactly the point between chaos and order where he's not suicidal, and yet he's not he's able to exit the existing order. It's not an easy place to go, right? That's that that's that's really the job of a good therapist, right? To be able to know how to do that, right? And that's the role that God gives or God allows man or, or or invites man into and that is the ability to know that I have the rocks in my hand what am I going to do with them am I going to just create stay in that moment of darkness not get myself out of it just sit there and be depressed or or, or kind of allow the darkness to, to overwhelm me or am I going to take these rocks and think how can I create light that's what the midrash is telling us and what the midrash tells us is that Adam takes the rocks and he's able to create the fire and then he makes and this is so profound as well and we just read it as if okay but the midrash is telling us something even more profound from the fire that he created from the innovation that he brought about from the destiny that he believes that he's created for himself what does he do he blesses God meaning even in our armor even when we've created the new existing order right even when we've exited the moment of chaos when we know that we've done it ourselves right and again it takes me back to Rifka that she gets that prophecy that's the covenantal thing she gets the prophecy the prophecy is ambiguous enigmatic she makes choices and she lives with those choices and by the way it's not a happy living for Rifka she we don't hear about her afterwards she's lost both her sons it's not a happy living the choices she make she made are not out of self-interest. They were the choices that she believed were the right choices for the destiny of Am Yisrael. Okay? And she lives with those choices in the same way that Adam, when he creates the fire, makes that choice to be innovative. And then he blesses God. He says, right? God, ultimately, you are the one that created the fire. But I know that I also had a role to play. That's covenantal living and that to me is one of the major messages this chaos and order and innovation these are all one of the major messages that i believe comes out through the stories of the other in sefer Bereshit. okay now here again even the, the imagery right where god's where where there's this ladder up to heaven which represents this notion of order right the ladder and the heaven and the earth it's all very but then there's the other image of being spread out and even the words of very um, it's almost chaotic, right? Hashem turns around and he says, Pasuk Yudalid, Vahayazar Echa Kaafaha Aretz, O Paratza Yama Vakedma Vatsafona Vanegba, right? Vinivrahu Baha Komish Pachotadama Vizar Echa. Again, we've got here the same parrot, the same motif. Okay, sorry, we're in source number one, Pasuk Yudalid, right? What was that? Yes. Pasuk um, Yudalid, and there, um, when, what's describing? You're going to be like the um, dust of the earth, and then you're going to spread forth, you're going to burst out, literally the words are, you're going to burst out. Um, I don't think I've got any more, hold on. Uh, No, I've only got one more, so I'm going to have to make some more copies. Um, you're going to burn out in all four directions. Okay? You're going to burn out in all four directions. Again, the imagery here is very much, it's like a chaotic imagery, right? Here, there, everywhere. Versus the ladder up and down from heaven and earth is a much more ordered. So there's again this imagery of the of the chaos and the order. So I, and again, taking all of this in mind, I want to go to um, to this notion of in order to create a new existing order, one has to begin with chaos. So most of you, I'm sure, know the story of Rosa Parks, the civil rights movement, how it all came about, what happened. Um, that's exactly this idea. Okay. And she, when she describes it, um, she talks about the idea, 
I'm going to read you a few. I bought you a very, very small thing on the sheet because I didn't want to waste too much space on it. But I'm going to read you a few things from her autobiography. Okay? So what happens? In 1955, she boards a bus um, in downtown Montgomery. She pays her fee. She sits in an empty seat um, in the first row of back seats that are reserved for the black people. Okay? But the problem was that there were too many white people that came onto the bus. And the driver wanted to move the division by three rows. And he asked all the black people that were sitting in the first three rows of the bus to basically give up their seats for the white, um, for the white people on the bus. And Rosa Parks says, people, and, and she refused to give, she decided, I'm not going to do that. And she refused to give up her seat. And it create, this created a massive uproar and, in essence, a massive amount of chaos. Um, which then went to the courts, et cetera, et cetera, and that's when things began to change, okay? But she says like this, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not physically, I was not tired physically or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I was not old, although some people have been an image of me of being old then. I was 42. <laughs> that's not old. Um, no, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. Okay, and she, when she refuses, she um, they um, she recalled that she asked, "Why do you push us around?" And she's saying, and he replied, saying, "I don't know, but the law's the law, and you're under arrest." Okay, and um, if you look at what I gave you, what she says in the, I gave you a small thing. Um, it's in source number um, five. Yeah. So he says to her, are you going to stand up? The driver demanded. Rosa Parks looked straight at him and said, no. Flusters are not quite sure what to do. Blake retorted, well, I'm going to have to have you arrested. And Parks, still sitting next to the window, replied softly, you may do that. Okay. And again, here what we see is that the, the very calm and stable, in some senses, and ordered a response created a sense of chaos for the bus driver and then, in essence, for, for, for everyone else around them. And, 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 and it began the, ro the ball rolling in terms of the civil rights movement and, and the rights of black um, citizens, etc. Now, why did I bring this to you? Because it was just one example. There's plenty of examples in the history of, of, of humanity, right? Plenty of examples of where having to bring about a sense of chaos in order to create a new existing order. Now, again, there's always, as with everything, there are always, um, th there's always a, a, a need to do it in the right way, okay? Because to go too much to the chaos, too much to the extreme, okay, one then totally leaves everything behind. One, one can't create a new existing order out of nothing, okay? A new existing order has to be grounded. If it wants grounding, if it wants to, um, to be resilient, it has to be grounded on things that came before. But in order to create that new existing order, in order to create that, the, new, the new building that comes on the old foundation, very often one has to enter a realm of chaos that comes before. I want to read with you Jordan Peterson. He says like this, order is, and Jordan Peterson, the 12 rules of life. Um, I just want to say one thing. Since I've bought a lot of Jordan Peterson and I've been listening to him um, as well, but I just want to say he, he I've, I've had a couple of people that have written to me about him and um, there is, if one searches for him online, you will see Okay, that he is, or he has become, unfortunately, a controversial figure. Um, <coughs> Rabbi Sachs just recently spoke about him. Um, he call, Rabbi Sachs calls him one of the greatest intellects in, in this era. Um, however, his views can be taken to be quite right-wing. Okay? And he, he has been adopted as the kind of... the. I don't know, the intellectual uh, father, so to speak, even of very, very right-wing organizations like the K KKL, um, the other right-wing organizations, KKK, 
for some reason, I, I, I was thinking, I was thinking, and that's why in my head, we, have, we went, you know why in my head, we have been at the Khula Valley this Shabbat on Thursday, and I was like, in my head, I was like the KKL, I, it was like there, everywhere, they were like advertising, it was like all over. Um, in any case, um, sorry, the KKL, and he, I just want to want you to, I've listened to him, I've read a lot of his stuff, I, I don't really get why that has happened. I still am bringing him, but I always like to give you all the information, okay? I still think he has an immense amount of wisdom. Um, but as with every thinker, and be they Jewish or non-Jewish, okay? As with every thinker and with every source and with everything that we bring, everything has to... We're, we're thinking people. We're, we're, we're free-willed, open-minded, thinking people. And therefore... I always say, we have to be critical of everything. That's part of being a humble person. Being humble means that I'm always open to the ability to see outside of what I have previously thought. And again, this goes back to the existing order and chaos. Okay, and I, I, this is also Rabbi Yitz Greenberg talks about this. And he, and he says, you know, the idea of, if we, if we, if, he talks about the idea of orthodoxy, Dafka. And he says, how can we prevent orthodoxy from going to the extreme? And he says, the only way to prevent that is to recognize that we are not, that, that we have to be self, we have to be, we have to be self-critics, okay? That we are, uh, we listen and we hear from the outside and we say, okay, maybe there's things that need fixing within ourselves, okay? Um, and I really, I really believe that also, even from the most mundane thing of reading certain sources, reading certain books, okay, that obviously when we come to any source and to any book, we need to not just accept things at face value. Everything has to be thought of, thought about. What does this give me? What doesn't it? Okay, when we, we're talking about Hanukkah and the, and the lights and lighting the candles of the Hanukkah candles, and the halakha is, do we light it inside or do we light it outside? And the end, the halakha says you have to light it at your door, right? That's kind of where the bottom line is, at the door between the inside and the outside. And the whole of Hanukkah, the whole theme of Hanukkah, I know we passed it, but still, okay, is the idea of what do I bring into my house and what don't I? What part of the Greek culture should I take and what shouldn't I? And I think the same can be applied to so many other things. Today, more than ever in the modern world in which we live in, right? You know, all our... Us and our kids all have um, phones, right? What? How do we dictate what we, even the most mundane thing of what we put on our phone and what we don't, what apps we download and what we don't, okay? And to take it from there to the idea of what we read, right? Am I reading this book because I'm reading it and I'm going to accept everything that it says, or am I reading it because there's a wisdom, there is a wisdom, and what part of that wisdom am I going to integrate into who I am? So again, that's why I'm giving it as a prelude to Jordan Peterson, because I think that he has an immense amount of wisdom. I think one of the major themes that he talks about of order and chaos has impacted me massively um, and has made me see things in a totally different light. Um, and yet, at the same time, I think, obviously, whenever you're reading something and whenever you're listening to something, the source that I bought here now I don't think has any issues, but whenever you're reading something or you're listening to something, there's always, always keep your ear open and always be critical. Is this, what is this saying to me? Where can I take it? What can I accept from this? Does it sit comfortably with everything I believe in? Doesn't it? And if it doesn't, maybe I also need to think about what I do believe in, what I don't believe in, and that's always part of it. Yes, there are dangers with it. Yes. But I do not believe today that we can go anywhere unless we literally live on an island without being exposed to dangers. And when I say dangers, I don't mean physical dangers. I mean intellectual, cognitive, religious. Okay? Even someone living in Bnei Brak, um, or Meir Sharim, there's no way that one can totally escape all of the dangers, so to speak, of the world around us. Okay? And I think... If that's the case, then let's immerse ourselves in the beauty and the wisdom and the splendor and the richness of what we have. But we need to be very, very aware, always aware, always on our feet, always trying to think of what I'm taking in and what I'm leaving out. Okay, so Jordan Peterson says as follows. Order is the Godfather. As order is God the Father, the eternal judge, the ledger keeper, the dispenser of rewards and punishments. Order is the peacetime army of policemen and soldiers. It's the political culture of the corporate environment and the system. It's the they in, you know what they say. It's credit cards, classrooms, supermarket checkout lineups, 
turn-taking traffic lights and the familiar routes of daily commuters. Order, when pushed too far, when imbalanced, can also manifest itself destructively and terribly. It does so as the forced migration, the concentration camp, the soul-devouring uniformity of the goose step. Now, I, I just want to stop here for one second. I'm going to say to you that one of the things we're going to be looking at is this uncanny parallel. It's clearly not uncanny, right? But this uncanny parallel between the story of the dream with the ladder and the Tower of Babel. Now, those were, that were with me two years ago, okay, when we learned the Tower of Babel, we spoke exactly about this issue. Okay, about the idea of individuality versus uniformity, okay, or, 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 another, or, or another example of unity versus individuality, right? Meaning what, to what level, to what extent do we create, or, or I should say that the opposite, at what price do we create uni unity? If unity is created, unity and becomes uniformity, then something's gone wrong, okay? If unity becomes uniformity, something's gone wrong. And if individuality becomes individualism, then something's gone wrong. And that balance is such a difficult balance to keep. It really is, okay? Um, and we're going to discuss that because I... The biggest question is, why does the Torah come to create that parallel, that clear and obvious parallel, both linguistically and thematically, between the Tower of Babel and the dream of Yaakov? Why, at this point in Yaakov's journey, does he have to be reminded of the Tower of Babel? What is it about the themes of the Tower of Babel that need to, Yaakov needs to respond to at this point? So we're going to come to it and see... But I, what I'm going to remind you of is what Jordan Peterson, Peterson says here. Okay, order when pushed too far can also manifest itself destructively and terribly. And I think Yaakov so much represents this paradigm of the movement between order and chaos. Because he is so ordered until that moment he goes and steals the birthright. And he becomes Asaph. And then he throws himself into this sheer chaos. And the chaos is both obvious in the text, but it's also obvious in the avirai, in the, in the feel of the text. It's obvious in the language of the text, but it's also obvious in the feel of the text. And this is, so this is what Jordan Peterson said. I'm going to carry on. Chaos is matter, origin, source, mother, material, the substance from which all things are made. It's also what matters, or what is the matter, the very subject matter of thought and communication. In its positive guise, chaos is possibly itself the source of ideas, the mysterious realm of gestation and birth. As a negative force, it's the impenetrable darkness of a cave and the accident by the side of the road. It's the mother grizzly, all compassion to her cubs, who marks you as a potential predator and tears you to pieces. We eternally inhabit order surrounded by chaos. We eternally occupy known territory surrounded by the unknown. We experience meaningful engagement when we meditate appropriately, sorry, mediate, well, it could also be meditate, when we mediate appropriately between them. To straddle that fundamental duality is to be balanced, to have one foot firmly planted in order and security and the other in chaos, tada. Possibility, growth, and adventure. When life suddenly reveals itself as intense, gripping, and meaningful, when time passes and you're so engrossed in what you're doing you don't notice, it is there that you are, it is there and then that you are located precisely on the border between order and chaos. The subjective meaning that we encounter there is the reaction of our deepest being, our neurologically and evolutionary grounded instinctive self, indicating that we are ensuring the stability but also the expansion of the habitable, productive territory of space that is personal, social and natural. It's the right place to be in every sense. You are there when and where it matters, okay? 
what's Jordan Peterson saying here? So I think what he is describing to us is that moment when you know you found meaning and yet it's ineffable, meaning you know that there is a truth. You know it. It's just, but you can't necessarily describe it. And that so often comes, very often comes, if you think about it for yourselves, that moment will more than often come at the moment when you are, you are kind of sitting between chaos and order, okay? Because when you're in routine and everything is ordered and everything is fine and everything goes tick-tack, 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 life just passes by, but there's no intense meaning. You can find, obviously, there's meaning in some places, right? But I'm saying it's... But the, and then when there's sheer chaos, there's no capacity from the human being to be able to even search or find meaning. Of course not, because there's total chaos. But the movement between the two, okay, that's often where meaning is found. Now... I want to go back to what I began the, the class with, and that was um, the Siyam Shas Nashim on Sunday night. And I want to just talk for a minute about the Gemara, because I was thinking about this also, even the learning of Gemara. Now, as most of you know, Gemara is definitely not my speciality at all, but in the past I have learned it before, obviously. And one of the things that always struck me as very profound is that the discussions in the Gemara are totally chaotic, okay? <laughs> to, right? Yeah. Totally chaotic. I always gave, I always imagined it. You know, very often, like, you have two girlfriends that are speaking on the phone, and you're just two really old friends, okay? And you've been through so much, and you move from one topic to the other. You're literally, oh, yeah, yeah. and then you go on to, how do we even get to that topic? And then you go back, and that is really Right? I mean, Lahabdil, obviously, but that is very much how the, the um, Tana'im and Amora'im in the Gemara have their discussion. Right? They're beginning a discussion about something, they go to something else, they bring in another source, they bring in something else, the brightest says this, they go to the bright, they come back, they go back, they come back. But ultimately, what has to come at the bottom? Order. Order has to come. We have to have a psak halakha because if we don't have order, if we don't have the psak halakha, we don't know how to act in the world. Okay, there has to be from the chaos, order has to come about. Okay, as human beings, we can't live totally in that chaos, but we need that chaos to give us the meaning. Okay, when we look at the discussions in the Gemara, you know, to take out a kitzah shulchan aruch, right, it tells me what to do. But it doesn't necessarily give me the depth and the meaning and the theological premise and the, the, the awe-inspiring idea behind washing Nagel Rasa. Okay, and just as one example, right? But if I really want to get to grips with the halakha, with what it means to do what I'm doing, what do I need to do? I need to go back to the Gemara. I need to understand what all those discussions are really about. Okay? And that's what Michelle Farber does in her classes, right? And, and many, many others, right? Where you're really, really trying, you're really, you're not just, and, and applying it, where, where does it touch us in our daily lives as well? Which is, but that's also where the meaning is, right? Um, on Sunday night, Erica Brown spoke so beautifully about the seven and a half years that she did Duff Yomi, and she spoke about what she encountered in those seven and a half years and, and various things, life events that happened to her along the way. And one of the things she said, which I thought was, again, like so mind-blowing, she spoke about what she learned from learning more about the, the, the quality of life and what life is, right? What is life? And in the end, and she spoke about the fact that she donated a kidney, right? And I just thought, whoa, like that is, that is the meaning in the chaos. That is taking all those discussions of the Gemara and understanding that underneath it all there is a sense of purpose, right? And that is, and I'd say even one thing more than that, right? We are living in an era today, and it was obvious on Sunday night as well, we are living in an era today where we have been given the role, and it is an overbearing responsibility, 
but it's it's ours to play of straddling exactly I'm using Jordan Peterson's language straddling the chaos and the order right because we are living in unprecedented times where we have opportunities and where humanity is at its peak in a way that we have never had in the history of humanity and in the history of Judaism to live in our own land to have security to to be able to be innovative and have purpose and do things and 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 also just the financial means that we're not struggling to put i mean obviously there are plenty of people that are poverty but i'm saying as a nation right to put bread and water on the table that gives us opportunities that we've never had before and the biggest question is to what extent do i create chaos to create a new order right do i just allow the status quo to exist because it's easy and comfortable or do i try to create a little bit of chaos in order to create a new order. And again, I'm going back, keep going back to it, but on Sunday night that to me was the message. The message there wasn't there was one moment there where I went through these these mixed emotions when Michelle stood up and she said, "We're now going to do Kaddish and I'm asking that the men that are standing here be for us for a minyan." Okay? And it was at that moment that I thought there was a moment that came through me and thought, "Oh my goodness, that's crazy after mm-hmm. hearing these incredible women and their tummy dot khamot in a way that we can we can't even imagine right we wouldn't have imagined 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago if someone would have said to me 20 years ago i met rav yitz and blue greenberg as we walked in and blue greenberg said to me as I, we walked in the store she said to me in my lifetime in the 1960s when i was you know fighting for women orthodox women feminism she says i imagined orthodox women rabbi she goes this i could never have imagined she said it to me i could never have imagined it and yet to me that is exactly that moment of saying we need the men for kadesh that is the moment of straddling the order and the chaos because on the one hand yes these women created some chaos it was didn't come easily none of this came easily right there was chaos that had to be created there were people that didn't agree there was a lot of things that had to be done and even to go back to sarishness and they spoke about right even in her day right that had to be done to get to this moment and yet at the same time to understand that one can't create total chaos that it has to be done incrementally that things have to remain in order that we have to remain within certain boundaries that order has to still exist right these are the, the this to me and then so exactly at the moment when they said it i had these different thoughts coming in and then they, like i felt at peace because i thought you know what that is that moment that is that moment of the meaning and the profundity and the and the and the knowing that that god has given me those two rocks to create fire and yet making the blessing to god right knowing that it's not just me that's that moment right of the of the of being in between the order and the chaos so that is really again to go back to where we're coming from yakob and avraham avraham when he leaves when lechlecha when he does lechlecha when god says to him leave your land again what god is doing there is to create a sense of chaos in order to bring about a new existing order in order to bring about a new existing order it wasn't very well right but to to bring about a new order that avraham is very much that Yitzhak less so because he has to, he's the generation that has to remain the status quo. He's the survivor. Okay, he was he was put in, he is that moment of chaos where one can't find meaning. That's Yitzhak, right? And Yaakov is the one that comes after that. Yaakov is the generation after the Holocaust, or the two generations after the Holocaust. He's the one where I'm not frozen in my trauma, I'm not frozen in my having to just maintain the status quo but i'm able but and this is really the key but that generation is also the most challenged because that generation still has to survive but also needs to move forward also needs to create a new existing order and also needs to survive and therefore very often that generation will come face to face with values that contradict each other with decisions with moral decisions that are extremely difficult Okay, and they are they are the ones that have to take a huge amount of responsibility. So now I want to move to Viva Zumbek and in her amazing language show you how um, she understands exactly what I've put together here, how she understands it from the narrative of Yaakov Shana. Speaking. 
meaning in the Heya. They resort to Eliyahu. They resort to Tehu. They resort to Tishbe. And who is Eliyahu? He's the man who never dies. He straddles between chaos and order. He straddles between Shammai and Aris. And that's what that's who we are. We're constantly straddling. You know, that's why he's there at Pesach. That's why he's there, you know, he's read Mila. And also, he's the one that after Loba Shamayim he, Tanoshalachnai, that's what I was thinking of when you said, that's exactly that moment in Tanoshalachnai, you know, they want to prove, they even call a butt call down to, Rabbi Eliezer calls a butt call down to say, you know, the Halakhaz will leave, and the rabbis turn around and say, Loba Shamayim he, and they don't know, and that's the thing also, this is, that Tanoshalachnai reminds me very much of what we spoke about with Rivka. How do I know? And a few people came up to me, not just in this class, but in the other class I teach as well. They came up to me and they said, but how did Rivka know that she was right? Right? How did she know? And the answer is she didn't. How did the rabbis know that they were right to say, we're not listening to Bakol? Lava Shamayi, how did the rabbis after the destruction of the Bahamidash and Matim for today, right? How did they know that after the destruction of the Bahamidash, what they were doing was the right thing to do? Right? Very often people say today, you know, how do we know what we're doing halakhically is right? And the answer is that we don't always know. And that, and then Eliyahu, in the corollary to this story, what happens? So they meet Eliyahu, what does, and they say, what was, and Eliyahu turns around and says, what was Hashem doing in Shemaim at that moment when they basically said to, 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 to God, thank you very much, we don't need you anymore, right? And what did he say? God was smiling or laughing, saying, it's holy benign, it's holy benign, right? And that is, uh, my children have defeated me, right? And Eli, right, it's so beautiful what you said, because Eliyahu is the one that brought meaning to that episode. And that meaning is exactly that in-between Shemaim, which is also the ladder of Yaakov, okay? The ladder of Yaakov is exactly this idea. And I, 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 I think it all ties in together beautifully. So look what Aviva Zornberg says. She says as follows. God's care for Yaakov is a microscopic matter. Out of a sense of God involved in such concerns... Hold on. Out of a sense of God involved in such concerns arises the possibility of wholeness. And I shall return in peace. B'shalom. Okay, remember we, we saw that I showed you the beginning of when he leaves Eretzal, when he comes back from Eretzal, and after his encounter with the angel at the Yabkuk, it says that he left, uh, sorry, with Esav, it says that he left B'Shalom, Shalem. Um, the concern, this concern for wholeness, indeed, is Jacob's central concern, and it is this, essentially, that God addresses in, this, in the dream. As Jacob goes out into a world of darkness and exile, order and coherence are endangered. To sleep in a holy place is to betray an ideal of heroic stability and consciousness. If I had known, I should not have slept. But God wants this sleep. He stage manages the abrupt darkness so that Yaakov will sleep and dream here. At the heart of the dream will be an image of his own sleeping body with angels quariously attacking the disgrace of his divided self of the king in his council chamber and asleep in the corridor, and in all the confusions, the oscillation registered by the satirical angels, God would stand firmly by him, proclaiming solidarity, a secret order in the chaos. In the, by the way, um, I, did I read, did we read the Midrash about a love that God stands on him? We read the Midrash. And, and, and Shagal imagines that that's what it is, right? It's, and it's almost, you know, when a child, like, someone's having a fit, God forbid, right? Someone had, And you have to hold the person, like, on the person. That's how I imagine, right? God s- sitting on him is that feeling of stability, of in that chaos, I'm stabilizing you, right? That, that's what it is. The classical, the linear, the predictable and reversible, one might say that these are aspects of Jacob's early life as a simple man living in tents of Torah in the harmonious interiors of the intellect. What begins with the setting of the sun is a disruption of these classical structures. God speaks of dust, of explosive movements outwards in all four directions, while the angels, the typos and everything else are mine because I, I didn't, I typed it. While the angels taunt Jacob with the anomaly of his complex and unpredictable condition. 
but the turbulence of the night contains an inter internal structure. I am with you. I shall not abandon you. There is a structure of dynamic process which is not known ahead of time. For time bounds ahead of knowledge as the sun sets and Jacob finds himself praying a new kind of prayer. Chaos, breakdown, disorder contain new possibilities for dynamic structure. Okay, and here's really where the theme of, of today's class is, and that is exactly this idea, that in order for Yaakov to become Yaakov and Yisrael, he has to go through this, this notion of chaos. Okay, And it's fascinating that the very often when you create a new order, okay, um, the order then can also become static, static and almost um, coercive, right? So in some sense, and this is what Jordan Peterson speaks about, but I think of Viva Zornberg hinting to it as well. In some sense, one always has to be in between the chaos and the order now. To me, that's why Yaakov is not called Yaakov in the end, or Esav, but Yisrael. And one thing more than that, okay? And what does Yisrael mean, by the way? To struggle with God, struggle, right? It's a constant struggle. You're constantly moving between the order and the chaos. But even more than that, Avram, when his name change became Avraham, he never went back to Avram, okay? The same with, um, with Sarah. But Yaakov, and by the way, Yitzhak's name never changes, interestingly, okay, because he is the one that remains as he is. But Yaakov, even though his name becomes Yisrael, he's always moving between the two. And that, to me, is exactly the message here about who Yaakov is and what he represents. And that is the idea that even when one has created a new existing order, even when one believes that one's become shalem, it's never really there, okay? There's a part of us, of our imagining order and imagining simplicity, okay, and imagining something totally complete, okay, that is um, fleeting. It's not true. It's not real, okay? It's an illusion, so to speak. And that, in essence, to me, is, the, is, is who Yaakov is. Um, we're going to speak a lot more about who Yaakov is, and, and then I just look, um, one thing I want to discuss before we finish today is the idea of um, the intent, the different intentions between Rivka and Yitzchak. Now, we spoke about it before a little bit, okay? Look at what Shmuel Klitzner says um, in Source 8. The original blessing to Abraham is received in Haran as in and is contingent upon Abraham leaving Haran and journeying to Canaan. Now, as a result of sabotage, Yaakov, who is to advance towards the divine destiny of Abraham, regresses, reversing destination and heading from Canaan back to Haran. The reversal of geographic destination signals a reversal of prophetic destiny. This is, I believe, one of the central messages of the book of Genesis. Sacrifice of moral autonomous choice and resorting to dubious means to achieve even the most lofty or divinely mandated visions constitutes violation of the very divine will it is intended to serve. Okay. Now here Shmuel Klitz is quite he has a very specific way of looking at the text, okay? And I don't agree with what he's saying here hundred percent, okay? But one of the things he's saying here, and I want us to be aware of this, we, last time in the previous sheets, if you remember, we were looking at what, how, how can we justify the act that Yaakov did, right? And we looked at all the different viewpoints, and we sh I showed you that in the text itself, even all the intonations of betrayal and deception and all the things that happened in Yaakov's life are a key to us, right? They're almost like the Torah is telling us something here is not right. Because it doesn't necessarily come out and say what Yaakov did and Rivka did was wrong. No. On the contrary, the Torah seems to suggest to us this is what Yaakov needed to become Yaakov, right? On the other hand, on the other side, the text does seem to show us that it comes back to haunt him all the time. So maybe there was something there that isn't. We need to feel a little bit uncomfortable about what Yaakov did. 
What Shmuel Chitna, he brings like a whole other dynamic here. And what he says is that um, Abraham, Yaakov reverses the journey of Abraham, which is, which is obvious. It's, a, it's an obvious reversal of the journey. Okay? But he argues, and we'll talk a, we'll talk a bit about, more about it in depth later on, but what he argues is that the reversal of it signals the fact that there is a reversal of prophetic destiny. Meaning what? Meaning because... I, I, okay, he seems to suggest two things. The first is because what Yaakov did was morally ambiguous and maybe even um, wrong, okay, there's a reversal in direction from Abraham's journey. Okay? However... If one continues to read what Shmuel Klitzner says, one will understand that what he's saying here is far more profound. Because what he's saying here is, and I want you to listen very carefully to the words he uses, sacrifice of moral autonomous choice and resorting to dubious means to achieve even the most lofty of divinely mandated visions constitutes violation of the very divine will it's intended to serve. He's saying here there's two critiques of Yaakov. Actually, no. He's saying there's a critique of Yaakov and a critique of Rivka. Okay? The critique of Yaakov is that he used dubious means to achieve his ends, i.e. deceiving his father and his brother. But the critique of Rivka, and this is also going to be a theme that we're going to understand, the critique of Rivka is here that she sacrifices Yaakov's moral autonomy. What do I mean by that? She basically coerces him to do an act that's morally ambiguous. And Shmuel Klitz, and one of the major themes in his book is the idea, because he he, he, his book is very psych, it's very, very much based on um, psychology. Okay? But one of his ideas is that the reason why Yaakov has to leave his home is because he has to become his own moral autonomous being. And in order to become a moral autonomous being, one cannot do that if one is constantly being coerced, so to speak, by another being. And that coerced being he's talking about is Rivka. Okay? And he says that everything that happens to Yaakov from then onwards is about finding his autonomous self. Who am I? Because that act that he does that keeps coming back to haunt him, it's not just the haunting of the act. It's not just the haunting of the moral choice that he made. It's much deeper than that. It's the haunting of the fact that he did an act without choice. That he did something to his father and his brother through coercion. And he justifies his um, thesis by saying, and I think that there's very clear in the text, Yaakov never speaks to Rivka again, never encounters again. We don't even hear about him mourning her death. Okay? And therefore, perhaps there is a part of Yaakov that recognizes that he had no choice. And what Shmuel Klitzner speaks about is to be an authentic human being, but to be an authentic religious human being, even more so, Okay, requires me to have moral autonomy. Now, you're going to all ask me, we're getting philosophical here, right? But obviously, the obvious question is, if that's the case, then what about all the mitzvah, all the halakha, everything that we have to do? Is that really giving us moral choice? Okay? And the answer, I think, and this is going to also be one of the themes that we're going to look at, Right? What does it mean to be a moral, uh, an autonomous moral individual? What does it mean to really make moral choices? Okay? And I think Yaakov represents this the best. Because what I believe is, and, and I think, we, again, this, don't forget, all of this happens before the Torah is given. Okay? This, here, what we're speaking about here, we're not necessarily speaking about a religious person. We are, obviously, because a religious person is... is I would say, in many ways, 
Every human being is a religious person to an extent. Every human being that believes in something other than just themselves, okay, is a religious person to an extent, okay? However, what we're talking about here is before the Torah, before the law, before everything else, before the external law, here the whole of Sefer Bereshit is based, is, 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 is the, the, the essence, I believe, is about how do I become an autonomously good or moral being without an external law? Without an external law, because the external law hasn't come yet, okay? And only when I recognize that I have the ability to do that, then the external law can come. Okay? The external law can only come when I have found, or when we have been taught, that we are, in fact, autonomous moral beings. And Yaakov begins his life in that kind of very ordered existence. And then he's coerced to do an act he doesn't really want to do. And that's when chaos reigns. Chaos reigns within and without. And Rivka in her greatness, and we have to give her her due, Rivka in her absolute greatness recognizes that for Yaakov to become a leader, he needs to go into exile. And the going into exile is not just an obvious, it's not a geographical going into exile, because it literally is. The Torah is describing to us here, Abraham goes to Eretz Yisrael, he leaves and goes in the opposite direction. It's a literal going, it's a geographical and literal going into exile. But look at source number, source number four. Again, Aviva Zornberg. In leaving home, Yaakov goes out into exile. This is an exile not only from his geographical home, but in some radical sense from himself. And this is the key, and this goes back to the idea of the order and the chaos and the having to create chaos in order to change an existing order. Yaakov had that existing order. The Ishtam Yoshev Olim, that was the existing order. When he does the act that he does, it would be easy for him to go back to the existing order, to the order that was before, in many ways. To go back to the Ishtam Yoshev Olim, to justify the act, to say this is what God wanted, to know that everything is black and white. But what Rivka forces him to do is to leave all of those frameworks behind. You're not anymore going back into the tent. You now have become the Ish Sadeh. Okay? If the Ish, if the Yoshev Halim is in that very closed in space, the Ish, ish Sadeh is, is the bounds of space, is the Everything is out there. And even more so, okay, is the man who sleeps in the open space. Okay, that is exactly the opposite of the Ishtam Yosheb Alim. So this is what she says. He has to go into exile from himself. His going out makes an imprint on himself. How is he to know himself in that strange country? In the darkness of exile. Okay? And again, it goes back to the, the Midrash we quoted at the beginning. Right When everything goes dark and Adam says, what am I to do? There's a very existential call there as well. What am I to do in the darkness isn't just a literal, how am I going to make light? right? But there's an existential cry of despair. What am I going to do in this darkness? How can I survive? Right? As he begins his journey, the sun sets. And when he returns 20 years later, the narrative describes the sunrise. Both these marks of time, the Midrash suggests, are functions of Yaakov's personal sense of time. Between these two points, there's a dark, there is dark, there is darkness, I should say, the dark night of the soul. And then he talks about the idea of the stealing of, of Leah being given in, in, instead of Rachel, also again being in the dark, right? In some real sense, Leah becomes Rachel during the night. This is the very nature of the night of the world of exile. Identities led into one another, faces and forms swirl in the darkness, meeting and splitting off, beckoning and mocking, where the visual is so untrustworthy, great weight is placed on the voice, on language. And it is primarily in this medium that, according to the Midrash, Yaakov is most poignantly betrayed, where he betrays and he is betrayed. Okay, he betrays with the voice in the darkness, and he is betrayed 
by the voice in the Midrash, where, remember, Leah lies under the bed and pretends to be Rachel, so that he doesn't know that he's uh, with, with Leah. In the Midrash there, what the Midrash is doing there brilliantly, right, and so profoundly, is showing us exactly this notion of, again, to go back to this notion of chaos in the darkness, and that's where the betrayal happens. The betray- and here the betrayal, what the Midrash, I think, one of the, one of the keys of what the Midrash is doing here is saying to us that when Yaakov betrays Yitzchak and Esau, right, there's a total parallel, the Midrash is showing us a parallel, to Yaakotelea and Rachel betraying him, okay? But what the Midrash is really telling us, it's not just showing us a parallel, it's not just saying he's got his comeuppance, right? As in, it's payback time. No, what the Midrash is telling us there is that when Yaakov betrayed Asaph and Yitzchak, really, he betrayed himself. Because Yaakov, what Yaakov did is to betray Yaakov. And the Midrash there is therefore placing that narrative on the narrative of the darkness, of the voice. That is exactly saying to us that in that moment, what Yaakov did was not just to betray Yitzchak and Esau, but actually even more profoundly to betray, to betray himself. And that sense of betrayal of self is far more difficult to shake off than the betrayal of someone else. When I betray who I was, when I'm no longer true to who I thought I was, to regain a sense of self, to own myself again, can take a lifetime. And that's what we see with Yaakov. What we see with Yaakov is the journey to regaining a sense of self. And he wants to. He almost clings to going back to the Ishtam Yosheb Olim. Even when he has, and we're going to, the pinnacle of the whole thing is when he, uh, when he meets the angel, right? And he, the angel says to him, what's your name? And he says, Yaakov. He wants to go back to being Yaakov. That's who he wants to be, right? He wants to go back to that moment where he's standing in front of his father and he doesn't say Esau. He says Yaakov. He wants to go back to that Shlemut. And in many ways, what the Torah is telling us here, and to me, this is the, the message that I think is the most powerful, right? Is that the Torah is telling us that actually living means betrayal, that there are always, any, any time, we are always going to betray ourselves in some way or another, in some form or another. We will always do that. And the biggest question is, how do I regain a sense of self? Or in other words, from the chaos of the betrayal, how do I create a new existing order? And when I've created that new existing order, how do I ensure that it doesn't become again once more something that is totally conforming and coercive. That is exactly the key, to stand between the chaos and the order, but to be true to oneself, to regain a sense of self. That's the message of Yaakov, and that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Have a good week, and song Carl for those of us